as I shared last week, I think doing a series on, on hope is, um, is kind of, it's something that you sometimes dread a little bit in a season that we've been in the last couple of years as um, a, a world, <laughs> as a nation, as a community. And so we, um, we didn't want to do some sort of cheap hope, you know, hope that we just put on a, a happy face and pretend that um, everything's okay. Um, some of you are probably familiar with the Enneagram. My brother-in-law, who's a psychologist, does not like the Enneagram, but I like it. So I'm going to talk about it today uh, for just a minute. But for those of you that are, th- I'm a three in the Enneagram, which means that I'm terrible at this, like this idea of lamenting. I always have to pretend like everything's good uh, because I want people to like me. Um, and then there are people that are like fours and you're like, this is it. I've been waiting for this for years at the church to think through uh, emotions and those sorts of things. So uh, this will be for you, all of you, and this will be a challenge for me, but exciting to dive into the series on hope. And I think that lament, at least from what I can tell in the scriptures, is very much a foundation, one of the foundations for how we get to hope. So why don't we pray and um, dive in. God, we, we're we going to read a lot of scriptures today. We're going to um, just hopefully look deep inside of us and try to um, understand maybe what better what you're doing. We want to be honest this morning. Uh, we, want to, we don't want to pretend. Um, I, I just know that there are people in this room that are carrying heavy burdens even right now or have had hard things happen um, to them in the last uh, few months and years. Uh, sickness and loss and depression and anxiety and God, we don't want to pretend that these things aren't part of the Christian life, but what do we do um, as we cry out to you for help, as we uh, cry out to you in frustration and anger, and can we be people that come to you with our full selves and not hiding anything? Um, we ask that, that would be true of our community even today. Amen. So I thought to start, uh, I would try to... Uh, take off maybe some people, I don't know, we're, we're just, the way I would say it is this, we are trained, I think from a very young age as Americans, to believe that everything is going to be okay, right? That you have uh, a life and your life is going to turn out right, that there's going to be like a Disney ending to it, and that you're suffering in pain if you have it at all, which you probably shouldn't have, uh, but if you do have it, it will be temporary, and it will go away, and it will be something that, in the end, you you know you're going to 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 win. And maybe there is some truth to that as a Christian. In the end, uh, God wins, right? God is good. But I think we're doing a disservice to the pain and the difficulties and trials of life um, when we don't take seriously our difficulties and our suffering and our pain. And I think that I've also heard, at least I've grown up in, in streams of the Christian, uh, Christian world, where suffering is kind of pushed to the side, where any sort of pain that you're dealing with is, is you not maybe uh, being obedient, right? Like sometimes we suffer and we go through trials and pain because we just are making terrible decisions, right? That is possible, that you're going through difficult things because you continually choose bad things for yourself. But there are a lot of times that we go through suffering and pain when it has nothing to do with our individual choices or maybe it has something to do with them, but not completely. And we, what do we do with those things? How do we 
process what's really going on when we experience pain. And I just want to make it abundantly clear that we shouldn't pass over those things or those are not just things that are happening because we're not being obedient to God. But this is the life of a Christian. This is the life of being part of the people of God. And I want to walk through the scriptures just briefly today and point out how suffering and difficulties and pain are not uh, something that are foreign to the people of God. They're not something foreign to the early church. They're not foreign to even us today. And I think this is important because I think it's, we're just so, we're trained, we're taught to, to tell the end of the story and how it all works out. But I want you today to sit in these narratives, even if I don't read the whole thing, but I want you to sit and think and imagine yourself in these stories as the ones going through these difficulties and pain. So the first thing that we notice in the Bible, if we, if we don't read, you don't have to read that far, you can read just to Exodus. And you find that the very people that are called God's people, Israel, becomes, uh, become slaves in Egypt. Exodus 1 verses 8 through 14 says this, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to, to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Anytime someone says that they worked you ruthlessly twice, you know that that's got to be very ruthless. I want you to imagine, uh, we, we know the story of what happens, right? We know that, that God comes and, and frees them as slaves, but that's moving too quickly. If we sit in Exodus 1, in, in the following chapters, before Moses is called, before Moses does all of his uh, amazing things, we find that the, the people of, of Israel are enslaved for hundreds of years. Think about that. So if you, were, if you were one of the first slaves, all you knew your entire life was slavery. There wasn't the exodus for you. There were generations of people that grew up oppressed and enslaved and died oppressed and enslaved. And I'm not saying nothing in their life was good. I'm not saying that they didn't have God by their side. I'm not saying any of those things. I'm just saying that was their lot in life. Later on in the Old Testament, I'm skipping lots of other ones, uh, other uh, opportunities to share, but we have something called the exile. And the exile was, uh, you know, the Syrians and the Babylonians essentially captured and controlled this, the nation of Israel who had just, you know, they'd broken free from uh, Egypt and they had gone to the promised land and now they're back essentially controlled and oppressed by nations abroad. 
We hear the story of Daniel in the midst of this, right? He is this young boy. He's a teenager taken from his family. I mean, you could essentially say, right, like he's, he's kidnapped or he's a prisoner of war. And he comes and he has to move to the, you know, the, the capital of Babylon and he has to serve the king. This is the context with which Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I mean, all these other young boys are brought to Babylon. And the other parts of the nation are, are oppressed and mistreated and taxed. And, and I'm sure you could use the term ruthless as well. Psalm 137 says this. This is a reflection on the time in Babylon. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and we wept and we remembered Zion. There on the popularities, we hung our harps for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing to us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? Is the question the psalmist asks. And so when you think about the psalms that are, you know, some people have said 30% or 50% or even more, they're, they're psalms of, of lament of crying out to God in their distress, of, of asking God to vindicate them from their enemies, of asking God to come and relieve them, to save them, to rescue them from whatever is going on. This is the reality. For, from Babylon, it was at least 70 years. So people didn't live 70 years. So you're talking about multiple generations of people in captivity, in exile. Most scholars believe after the ministry of Malachi, which ended around 420 BC, that God did not speak through to his people through prophets for over 400 years. <laughs> Until John the Baptist, we would say that, that God was not, I mean, and people would talk about these things, but, but they felt like God had not spoken. God had not revealed himself in the way he had for Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah and Moses and other people throughout history. Can you imagine feeling like God would have been silenced for 400 years? And it's not just, some people say, well, that was before Jesus. That was before Jesus died on the cross and resurrected from the grave. And so we don't suffer like that or we don't experience those sorts of things every day. And, and these are the reasons why. Well, I would argue that's, that's not true either. Paul, in, uh, in his letters, asked the church of Antioch to give offerings for the church in Jerusalem. Jerusalem! Because it was impoverished because it didn't have enough, because it was going through such a difficult time. I mean, you think, Jesus had just resurrected from the dead. There's essentially hundreds and hundreds of people coming to know and trust in Jesus and align themselves with this new movement of the way. And here's a church struggling in poverty. More than that, they experienced intense persecution in the early church. No, this is different than the persecution that we talk about today when we don't like certain laws that are changed. It seems like all of the disciples were martyred for their faith. John was the only one that <laughs> got away from that. I mean, he got exiled to Patmos on an island. And then it increased for the church in AD 64, July 19th, a great fire engulfed much of Rome. Maybe you know your history. You know this story. 
And essentially four out of the 14 quarters, maybe you could think about those as like boroughs of New York City, four of the 14 boroughs lasted and escaped the damage of the fire. Most people suspected that Emperor Nero was actually the one that set fire to the city so that he could rebuild it and put his you know, roads and his, the buildings that he wanted up and name a bunch of things after him. And so the criticism was coming heavy on him. And so to, a way to avoid that is he blamed the Christians that were living there because they were a minority, a small group of people at the time. And many were seized and tortured and put to death in the arena. Many were killed for confessing Jesus. And so I say all that stuff not to depress you today, but to show you that our suffering does not mean that God is not there. It does not mean that there is no hope. It does not mean that it's our final lot, but it is our reality much in our lives. I think there are a number of reasons that we need to lament. The Psalms are filled with laments and complaints and protests. As I already said, I'll just read you a few uh, you know, lines that stick out to me. Just three of them. It says, Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me, O Lord. Make haste to help me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. In Psalm 18, Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried for you for help. Psalm 28. And some of these Psalms were written when Israel was at its peak, right? When they were a nation that had power and Control and great kings like King David. And I think that there are a number of reasons why it's really vital for us. And I would say this, especially the, the white church of, uh, in America has struggled with the idea of, of lament. And I alluded to a little bit of them earlier. But first, I think we've been told much of our lives that we are exceptional. That we are morally right. That we will be triumphant. That God is on our side. And so to admit that, we're, <laughs> that life isn't so grand or to admit that there's problems kind of fights against this thing that we've been told. This sort of idea that God is with us or that God will always provide for our nation or our community or even ourselves that we won't need to go through suffering. And I think if we just, second, we've been told that, you know, to celebrate our success and our achievement and, and certainly suffering is opposed to that. The church has its own things, right? And we've been convinced. I mean, you can listen to almost any sermon on TV today and they will convince you that if you follow Jesus, that life will, you know, will get better, right? It's like you're going to be healthy. You're going to be wealthy. You're going to experience really, really good things. And though I do believe you'll experience really great things by following Jesus, I don't believe that health and wealth are often the results. And because we have been fed this lie our whole lives that following Jesus is, is, is somehow we're different than all the other people that have followed Jesus in the past or all the other people that were part of the people of God in the Old Testament, I believe it's, it's causing all sorts of people to walk away from their faith when they actually do experience suffering. They don't run to Jesus and cry out to, to God. They don't lament and mourn and, and, and find hope in the midst of those things as the psalmist does. They walk away because it feels untrue. It feels unhelpful in the midst of 
those dark times. So, um, I think there are serious consequences when we refuse to acknowledge or refuse to lament through our suffering. Walter Brueggemann wrote uh, two of them, or I guess he spoke two of them, and a sermon that I heard at one point in time. And this is what he alludes to as two of the reasons or things that will impact us, us personally, beyond the things that I've already talked about. Um, if something is wrong in our lives, what will happen is we'll begin to believe it's our fault and it invites us into incredible guilt. So we've been told this lie that you should have success, you should have health, you should have victory, you should have, uh, you know, be happy, you should have, you know, hope. And when we don't have that, when we're not free to share that that's not been our experience or that we're actually going through very difficult times or this is, you start to say, well, maybe it's just me. Because everyone else keeps saying that I should experience something very different than this. Everyone else is saying that I should be happy. Everyone else should say I should be experiencing success. Everyone else should say that I shouldn't be getting sick. And yet here I am experiencing all of these things that I'm told I'm not supposed to do. So who's to blame for that? It has to be me, right? And it invites incredible guilt that is not from God. And the second thing, and it's just as harmful, and I've kind of alluded to it already, is that it invites people to a great denial. So I have to keep pretending that everything is fine, that everything is good with me. I have to put on a happy face and pretend that life is okay. And when we deny that things aren't good in our lives, we end up just pretending. And at some point in our lives, that will break down. At some point in our lives, the, the, the Psalms are written for us. We need the Psalms. And if we avoid those things, it's, it's going to catch up to us. And we're going to either say, uh, re, re, you know, be frustrated because of the guilt, or we're going to be frustrated by faking the reality that we're not okay. Things are not always all right. And so the Psalms of disorientation, the Psalms of lament, lift up and call attention to the reality of human loss and pain. But they do that without making a moral judgment about whose fault it is. And you don't have to pretend to deny it. The truth is, is that every one of us in this room most likely is carrying some sort of burden, some sort of pain. Some of them are significant. Some of them maybe are minor at this point in your life. But I think regardless of whether you're experiencing something significant or minor, there's an urgent call to practice out and cry out to God. It's interesting, uh, Karl Barth, who's a famous theologian, some of you may know who he is and some may not, but he talks about the blind Bartimaeus at one point in time. I don't know if you remember that story in the New Testament. And he cries out to Jesus as he's walking by. Everyone else is kind of trying to hush him, push him to the side. And he keeps crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. And everyone's kind of trying to like push him to the side. He just never stops. And Jesus hears the man and goes and heals him from, heals him from his blindness. And I think that sometimes uh, we've been taught theology to believe that um, 
I don't know. Like it's, it's kind of like this weird fatalistic where it's like God is always the one that takes action. And we just have to kind of wait on God to do stuff, right? And I would just say that I understand where that theologically comes from. But if you read the scriptures, it is often people who cry out to God, who plead with God, that push God to action. Now, I don't know how to like, figure out how that all works. It's very hard to make sense of that. And we don't have enough time today to figure out why is God taking action when it seems like people you know, cry out. and like, Why isn't God just doing it before like do that? Like, I can't answer that question for you. But if you read the New Testament, many of the people, the woman that's, that's, that's bleeding, right? What does she do? She takes action. She grabs his cloak and Jesus says, your faith has saved you. You ask the people, like they're coming up to Jesus and asking him to heal their, their kid or heal their servant or, or, or you know, asking Jesus for, for help, right? They're the ones taking the initiative. They're the ones going and, and pleading with God to do something in their distress, in their disorientation, in their suffering. And so there is something to be said. I don't know how you could deny it. That we, when we take action, God is much more likely to act. And so when we cry out, when we lament, when we pray for God to do things, God does them. Some people think that it's odd or superstitious or against their, the way they've been taught. And I just would say, just go for it. Just pray for what you actually need. <laughs> just cry out for, to God. And you don't have to temper those things with, well, God, if it's your will. God's going to do his will. He didn't need you to, to remind him to do it if it's his will, right? Just, just, just ask him for it, right? Let's go for it. You know, you hear... People talk about, uh, I think we just try so hard. We've been, we've been you know, I, I don't know, maybe this isn't fair, but it's just like so hard to, to, to try to avoid uh, loss and remorse and, and, and mourning. And last week we talked about we're blessed if, we're, if we mourn. But, you know, so many people say, I, I don't want to go to that funeral. I don't want to go to that place. I don't want to meet with that person because of, of the sorrow, because of the pain, because I'll, I'll cry because it's just going to be such a hard thing. And I think that when we don't grieve, we deny the reality of love, right? We deny the reality of love for that person that maybe is going through pain or, or passes away. And so since everyone is grieving something, usually in their lives, there's some times that we need to, to take that into account. And so I think what happens as we cry out, as we go after and take the initiative as, as we run after God. As we, like I love Psalm 13 and I, the reason I had Fred read that this morning is it's such a, a powerful, like, how long, oh Lord, do I have to wait? How long am I going to have to wait for you to act? It's so honest. And I think if we really truly want intimacy with God and if we truly want to move, not to just pretending that everything's okay, but to experience actual hope that the good news of Jesus brings in our lives, that the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit does when the Holy Spirit is in us and with us and for us, 
then we have to learn to be honest. We have to learn to cry out. We have to learn to pray and take initiative for what we need from God. So I've talked a lot about why we should lament, and I think that it might be time to just do that, right? Instead of, instead of just talking about or explaining why it's important, I think that it would be good to just do that. And so we want to take a time. Uh, I want to do a corporate prayer together, which we don't often do, but I think it's one uh, that is good. I don't know who actually authored this. It's a, it maybe someone knows, but I, I, I've tried my best to figure out who it was. I don't know who wrote it. But it was written last year, and so I took out the 2020 language and, and just made it more like, this is just a prayer, a prayer that we need to say often. And then I want to enter into a time of communion. And today's um, time of communion is going to be slightly different. And the reason it's going to be different is I just I want to read a passage from Isaiah that explains what Jesus did for us. But we're going to uh, not go to like, you know, like push the resurrection. We're not going to, we're going to just kind of sit in the midst of the cross, right? And Jesus' death, his, his suffering and his pain on behalf of us. And we're going to also, um, we're going to sing, and you're welcome to stand and sing, but we're going to take communion, uh, and it's going to be slightly different. We've been doing it with the cups on the seats in the past, but today I want you to, as you feel like the, like the Spirit of God, as the Holy Spirit is leading you to t- come and take communion, then I want you to go and respond. We have two uh, tables for communion, and if you'd prefer um, the more sanitary version of the cup and the, uh, the juice, in the cup? Yeah. Whatever, the wafer in there, you can grab that. Otherwise, you can grab a piece of bread and dip that and take that as you are ready today. Does that make sense? And the last thing I wanted to say is that we have people that are here that would love to pray for you and with you. Um, and so we're going to have a couple people up front and a couple people in the back that would love to pray for you and over you and with you, um, whatever is going on in your life. Does that make sense? All right. So would you stand with me as we sing this or as we uh, say this corporate prayer together. And with the worship team, if they would just come forward, because we're going to go into um, communion after this. So I'll read um, most of the text, and then when it says all, that would be your portion to jump in. Would you pray this with me as we cry out to the living God? Lord, over time, To you, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are but a day. To us, the past couple years have seemed a thousand years, a thousand years of disappointment, a thousand years of loss, a thousand years of injustice, a thousand years of insecurity. We can only turn to you and say, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom us like captive Israel. So altogether, we mourn in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Our disappointments dwell deeply within us. Postponed proms and graduations, would-be weddings and friendless funerals. Missing family at sacred feasts, sanctuaries unfilled, unlit, unused. We can only turn to you and say, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom us like captive Israel. We mourn in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Our losses linger alongside us, nursing home neighbors, losing inspiration and energy, tearful farewells shared only through screens, strangers, acquaintances, grandparents, beloveds, illness, complications, doubt, death. We can only turn to you and say, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom us like captive Israel. We mourn in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. 
Injustice surrounds, encircling the least of these. Black lives loved in heaven but devalued on earth. Knees on necks, quieting calls, uh, quieting calls for help. Peaceful sleep, then in seconds, slaughter. A Georgia jog stopped short by a shotgun. We can only turn to you, say, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom us like captive Israel. We mourn in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Insecurity abounds, overwhelming our abundance, hours reduced and vocations lost, elections contested and divisions multiplied, wondering where is the light of the world, pinning for the Prince of Peace. We can only turn to you and say, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom us like captive Israel. We mourn in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, so one day, once more, we can sing, Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel has come to us in Israel. So as we step into this time of communion, I want to remind you that our Savior, the one that we worship and long for, uh, was not immune to suffering and pain. So I want to read from Isaiah. And uh, as you're ready to take communion this morning, you're welcome to go and grab that from the table as you'd like, if you'd like to sit, if you'd like to sing, if you'd like prayer, all those things are available to you. So this is about, prophetically about Jesus, the Messiah that would come. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of this generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had not done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Amen.